How you guys doing, Desperation? Good? Awesome. Hey, there's still some people uh, filing in, so if you have like room to move down maybe into the middle or whatever, maybe they're trickling, it might be all right. Awesome. Great to see you guys. I'm glad you came to my, what do they call this? Session? Breakout session? Uh, my name's John. John Zondervan. I am from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Yes. Some of my peeps are here. I lead an incredible group of young people called Radiant Youth. Our church is called Radiant Church, and uh, we took a bus all the way from Michigan. Anybody come further than that that's in here? Further than Michigan? Anybody want to go back to Michigan instead of me? No? Nothing? How far? It was uh, 24 hours, I think, in a bus. About 24 hours in a bus. I think you can... Yeah, I know. You guys rocked it out, let me tell you, so... Um, I've been a youth pastor there, geez, I'm going into my 10th year already, and I have known David, Pastor David Perkins, since he was just a wee, well, wait, wee little, no, he's still, no, I'm just kidding, uh, just kidding. I've known David a long time, 2000, I want to say, 2002, something like that, he came to our church, and um, we hit it off, him and our senior pastor hit it off, so we've maintained a relationship, and then in 2008, uh, we hosted a desperation conference at our church at Radiant, so... Maybe some of you might recognize me from there, but that was a long time ago. And then I came in 2009, um, and then I haven't been back since. So it's an honor to be able to speak to you guys, to be here, and to be uh, representing Desperation is uh, a huge, huge honor for me. So I appreciate you guys being here. It's going to be good. And I won't keep you long. I won't go late so that you have plenty of time to eat. How many of you are doing the Chick-fil-A thing here? Yeah? How many of you have Chick-fil-A where you live? Like, you can get it when you want it. Ah, See? We're in Michigan. We have nothing. We have, we have no hint of that. So we're excited. We're excited about that. So um, what else do I want to tell you about me? I've been married almost 13 years to my lovely wife, Kendra, uh, who's not here with us today. Thank you. It's been... You should probably clap for her. She's had to put up with a lot more uh, <laughs> than me. But yeah, we've been married. Gosh, we got married in 2000. So almost 13 years. We had three beautiful children, two girls. Ava and Addie, they're eight and seven, and then I have a brand new little son named Eric, who uh, is six months old, so excited about that, miss them already, but uh, no place I'd rather be if I have to be away from my family than with you guys. I figured before we pray, because I don't know if I'm going to be able to get the Holy Spirit back after I do this, before we pray, I'll share a similar story (laughs) to Dave. I was giving Dave a hard time about his bathroom story that he told yesterday, how many, you were in there for that, right? And I told him, I said, dude, at least yours like had significance and you could tie it into a deeper meaning and it had like, you know, something you could learn from it. And I told him about the bathroom experience I had. And I said, it's worse than yours. I hate to one up you at your own conference, but it really is worse. And I said, but there's no context for it other than you already told a bathroom story. So I'll tell all the students in my breakout that, hey, we're giving bathroom stories for you guys for free. So I'll make it, yeah, okay. I'll make it real quick and I won't be as... I won't be graphic, I promise, but, but I want you to just imagine how mortifying this really is. Okay, I'm a huge tennis fan. I've played tennis my whole life. Uh, I watch tennis. I'm into tennis big time. So I, I play in tournaments. Well, I was giving my daughters at the time, who we were seven and six, lessons at the local place where we play tennis. And so we had a routine. I'd pick them up from school. We had lessons every Tuesday, I think, for like two months. Pick them up from school, take them right there. They had their school clothes on, so they would grab their little bags with their tennis outfits in them go around the corner, go right into the bathroom, and change, and I'd wait for them 
out there, and then when they came out, they'd give me the bag, they had their school clothes, and we'd go do their tennis lesson. Well, I mean, like I said, we'd do that for two months. And shortly after that, I'm in a tennis tournament at that same place, and I get there, you know, a little before my match, and I don't know if it was nerves or what, but I had to use, I had to use the bathroom. Uh, so, and I don't know if it was just like all of the repetition going on in my mind, but I envisioned my daughters going here, turning left into the bathroom, and going in there. So I accidentally went into the women's, women's bathroom at this tennis tournament. Hundreds of people are already there, but there's nobody in the bathroom. So I don't even know it, you know, and I didn't, I needed to sit down, if you will. So it, the urinal, that's usually the telltale, you know what I mean, that you're in the wrong, but I didn't even know. So uh, I'm in there, and I don't think there's anybody in there. And it's not like I was talking to myself or anything, but I look over, and I see this teeny little, like, white and pink shoe in the stall next to me. I'm like, what is this dude's shoes? He's like, what, a size four? And, and then I heard the door open, and I heard women's voices. And I was like, oh, dear Lord, let that be someone just stocking the towels or why didn't they knock? And then I realized I'm, I'm in the women's restroom. And what I've just done in there shouldn't even be spoken among children. Let me just tell you that. It was, uh, <clears throat> it was a number three. I'll just put it that way. So anyway, I'm thinking, this lady next to me is going to be like, I'm in here with the nastiest woman in the whole world. And her feet are size 15s. What is going on here? So I literally lifted my feet up so no one could see. And I'm in this, like, Jedi crouch position. I'm cramping up. <laughs> and I'm thinking, how am I ever going to get out of here? Because there's people that are still coming in, and, and there's only like three stalls, so they're probably going to be waiting soon. So I literally just sat in there sweating profusely, holding my feet up. I'm not even really finished, if you will. I hate to say that. but <laughs> So anyway... I waited until I thought the coast was clear, and I'd go out, and I'd smack a lady in the face as I'm opening the door <laughs> to the bathroom. I'm like, oh, sorry, in like my manliest voice, wrong bathroom. And I walk out of there and act like I didn't have any idea what just took place in there. But then, like, four or five guys saw me come out of there, and they gave me the worst time about that, too. It was like Dave was saying, every time you make eye contact, it's like, ugh, why did they see me do that? And so this dude was like, did you just come out of the women's bathroom? And I was like, yeah. He was like, that's awesome. And I was like, yeah. It's not really my plan, but thank you for the encouragement. I appreciate that. All right. We're done with that. But it was significantly scarring for quite a while. And I don't know that I'll ever play that tournament again. It comes back every year, but I'm just too scared. Maybe I shouldn't be running from my past, but um, I am. I don't know if there's redemption for that. So maybe you guys can pray for me later. All right, let's pray. And we'll get into this today. Father, thank you for this opportunity. I'm so grateful, God, and humbled by who you are and what you've done in, in my life, God, and I just look at your faithfulness throughout my years, and I am just in awe of your goodness and grace. And God, I pray that, God, the young people in this room won't have to possibly navigate some of the things that I did in my life. I thank you for allowing me the privilege to spend 10 years now um, training, discipling, and equipping young people to be who you've called them to be, to realize that they're a chosen generation, God, a holy nation, a royal priesthood that they're marked and called by you. And I just pray that throughout this conference, God, in this session and and throughout the days ahead, that you would continue to open the eyes of the hearts of these young people to deposit truth where the world has tried to bring lies, God, to silence the mouth of the accuser 
And Lord, let the peace, truth, and presence of God reign in their hearts this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to talk about consecration. Um, obviously, we do the vow. We have the four, the four things. They asked me to do consecration. I said, sure, and, and I'll give you a definition if you want to write this down. Maybe you're not exactly sure. There's some religious words sometimes that we're like, yeah, I've heard that, but I don't know what it means. This is Webster's uh, definition, and I think it's a good one. It says, a solemn commitment of your life or your time to a cherished sorry, purpose or goal. A solemn commitment. That's the word I want to focus on. Of your life or your time to a cherished purpose or goal. I'm assuming you guys came to desperation because you want to commit your life to something that's bigger than yourself, bigger than what's going on around you. You want to be a part of something that God's doing. And, and that's called consecration. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says that you are, you're a chosen generation. You're a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And that your existence is to, to sing the praises and the excellencies of the God who transferred us out of darkness and into His glorious light. So never underestimate what God wants to do with you as a young person. You're part of a chosen generation that God's using. And to be consecrated means that you take consciously say, I want to commit my life to what God is doing. I don't want to just float through life. I don't just want to react to everything that happens in life. And, and what I think we're often in danger of, guys, is compartmentalizing our lives into different categories. So what we do is we take God and, and, and maybe we say, okay, well, I'm supposed to make sure that God's first in my life. And I would tell you guys, steer away from the idea of putting God first. Because I know that, and maybe that sounds bad to you, but let me just explain to you. When you do that, what you've done is you've now said, okay, well, if God's first, then, then I have to put, okay, family second, school third, uh, friends fourth. And we, we come up with this list, and suddenly we've, we've done that. We've compartmentalized our lives. So... When we put God first, what do we do? We, we wake up and we do our devotions, or we spend some time in prayer, and then we say, okay, God's first, and now I'll move on to my life that includes my family, or I'll move on to my life where I hang out with my friends, and suddenly now God's kind of in the, the background. And I would encourage you, throughout this week, throughout your life, picture God as being the center of your life, not just first. And then ask yourself every day, what will my relationship with my family, with my parents look like? with God at the center. What is that going to look like? What is my relationship with my friends? What we laugh at? What we, what we do together? What we consider important? What we're striving for? Our purposes? Our goals? What is that going to look like with God at the center of my life? God at the center of your work, of your job, where you go. So that, guys, God is influencing every single thing that you do. Instead of just making God God on Sundays or on Wednesdays at youth group. God's the center. He's the focus of every single thing that you're doing. And you consecrate yourself that way. Now, I'm all for having moments where you spend time just with God, and you pray, and you, and you put an emphasis on uh, His presence, and Him speaking to you, and reading your Bible, and praying. In fact, there is no other way to grow into the things of God. There's no substitute for the presence of God in your life through prayer. So I'm not advocating that, but I'm saying throughout your day, you know, the Bible says, Paul said, pray continuously. Pray without ceasing. I don't think he meant you have to lock yourself in a closet and never stop praying, but all throughout your day, situations that arise, kids that are being picked on at school, issues with your parents, pray through those. It's not a one-time thing that you do in the morning 
when you consecrate yourself. It's not a one-time thing that you do, you know, in, in a desperation conference when you raise your hand and say, I want to give my life to the Lord. We consecrate ourselves. We commit ourselves to who God is and what he's doing every single day. And the, the way that's going to look is different, guys, to our society around us. It's not normal to consecrate yourself unto God. It's not normal. We live in a culture that is oblivious to the presence of God in their lives. It's easy to say you're a Christian on Facebook and to put that as your status or to put that as your religion and then live as if God doesn't even exist in your life day to day. You have no awareness of the presence of God. You're oblivious to God. And so if you get anything out of this, remember, God is with you everywhere that you go. God wants to influence every decision that you make. I'll never forget my mother-in-law. She had me and my wife over. And she kept talking about her cat. This has to do with being oblivious. Her cat, she was like, this cat, I can't even hardly afford cat food. He eats so much cat food. I'm like, why do you even have a cat? I hate cats. Sorry if you love cats and your cats. Sorry, I don't like cats, for real. It's like maybe if I really needed mittens, I'd get a cat or something. And sk- no, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't skin a cat. I'm kidding. I'm not cruel to animals. But anyway, I was, like, I was like, I don't know why he does that. And she was like, you know, wouldn't stop talking about it. Well, come to find out, my mother-in-law won't wear her, her glasses so she can, like, barely see. So we go out there to see this cat. She keeps it in, a, in her sunroom. Uh, really nice house. And it's like a 45-pound possum. Uh, that she, I don't know if she's petting it or what, but she's feeding it. And yeah, obviously it's eating a lot of cat food, uh, ma'am. And so she was like that. And so we go out there, and literally this possum is out there. And she had been feeding it, caring for it, leaving a heater, a space heater in there because it was wintertime in there. And, and all for this cat that she thought she was loving on and uh, playing a part in its development. And it was a possum. She was oblivious. And I only say that because many times, guys, we go through our lives, at least even our days, and incrementally day adds upon day, oblivious to the things of God, to God's presence in our lives, to God wanting to be involved in every single part of our lives. So what we're going to do with the remainder of our time is we're going to look at a story because I don't want to just talk about consecration in the sense that, hey, you need to read your Bible more and you need to pray more and, and those are important, but I'm not here to guilt you or to punish you into a relationship with God. You have to want that. And that's what I loved what Dave talked about last night when he said, look, don't let, don't let the goodness of God become mundane to you. Don't let amazing grace become so-so grace in your life. Don't let the fact that what God's done for you when he forgave you and loved you and exchanged your sin for his righteousness ever become old in your life. Remind yourself constantly that without God, we're nothing. And there are millions of people across the world who have no relationship with God. We could have grown up in a Muslim home and had no relationship with God. We could have grown up in India and been a Hindu and had no relationship with God. And I would just encourage you, pray for missionaries. Pray for what God's doing all over the world. Expand your vision to see beyond our little pockets here in the United States, although it's important. But it is It is incumbent upon us to realize God is moving throughout the entire earth. So what are some practical ways that we can take this and say, how am I going to consecrate myself? What does that look like for me? So I'm not going to just use theory. I'm not going to just use big words and say, here's what that means. Go do it. We're going to look at somebody's life. We're going to look at a Bible story. And we're going to draw some truths out of that. And I'm going to ask you, how can you apply these to your life? What does this look like for you 
at your school, at your job, and in your home. Um, and you can write those down. So how many of you have heard of the story of David and Goliath? Raise your hand. How many of you grew up in a church like I did? That's almost all of us, maybe not everyone, where you remember David and Goliath being on the felt board when you had Sunday school. Raise your hand high, remember? Oh, that's a lot. Remember, Goliath was big and David was real little and then they'd peel it off and put something else over there. I grew up on, on felt board stories in Sunday school. In fact, I remember <clears throat> one time in Sunday school, I didn't pay great attention. I was always kind of the class clown talking to everybody else. And, and uh, so I remember one time the teacher was like asking a question, and I have no idea what she asked. I was paying zero attention. And she goes, do you know the answer, John? And of course, you know, I'm in a room full of all my peers and my friends, so I'm not going to say I don't know the answer. So I was like, yeah, I know the answer. And what do you do when you're in Sunday school and someone says, do you know the answer? And it's somebody, you answer with who? Jesus, exactly. Every time, twice on Sunday. You're going to get it right a few times. So I was like, yeah, I know, it's Jesus. And I said it, you know, confidently, like, for sure. And then my teacher said, "Uh, no, John, Jesus did not betray himself for 30 pieces of silver. (laughs) So, apparently it was Judas and I got it a little wrong. But hey, I had the J right, so give me some credit. Anyway, we're going to look at the story of David and Goliath. We're going to walk through it a little bit, and I'm going to pull just a few things out that maybe you haven't heard through the felt board stories, or maybe you haven't realized when you read it. I'm going to try to get you guys to think for yourselves and see how you can apply it to yourself. So turn to 1 Samuel if you brought your Bibles. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Samuel. Chronicles. 1 Samuel chapter 17 is where the story is found. Let me just give you a teeny bit of context. Maybe all you've ever heard is the actual story. But leading up to this story, Saul has been the king of Israel. Israel wanted a king like the other nations had. God didn't want to give them an earthly king. He wanted to be their heavenly king. But they asked and they begged and Samuel said, let's get one. And so they picked out Saul. Saul was tall. Saul was uh, a shoe-in, it looked like, to be a great king. So they anointed him. But it turned out he was a terrible king. He was insecure. He was moved by the people's opinions. He couldn't lead. He was a, uh, a terrible leader. And so at this point where we are in 1 Samuel 15, a couple chapters before this, God says to Samuel, I'm grieved that I ever made Saul king. And now I want you to go to Jesse's house and I want you to anoint a new king. And I'm tired of you grieving for Paul. So prior to this, Samuel goes to Jesse's house, and he says, I'm here to anoint somebody king. And so he tells Jesse, line up your sons. God's going to do something here today. And so Jesse gets his sons, and he lines them all up. And Eliab is the oldest son. He's the tallest, he's the best looking, he's the winner of the family, and he comes forward in the Bible. If you look at commentaries, it actually says that Samuel tried to anoint him. He tried to actually pour the oil on Eliab's head because he thought, surely this is God's anointed. In fact, that's what the Bible says. This has to be the the next king. This is the one God wants to use. And that's where you get the famous scripture in 1 Samuel 16 where it says, God, man looks at the outside appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so don't judge him according to that because that's not how God looks at people. So Samuel isn't allowed to 
anoint Eliab the king. And then he goes down the line to all of his sons, and none of them are the one, according to God. And so Samuel has to ask Jesse an awkward question at this point. He has to say, well, do you have, are you sure this is it? Is this all of your sons? And it's at that point that Jesse realizes, oh yeah, I forgot, there's David. How do you know, it's one thing if your dad forgets your birthday, forgets that you were student of the week, but when your dad forgets that you exist, uh, that's a rough day for David. When your older brothers have to be like, David, oh yeah, David, I remember, yeah, David. So Samuel says, well, go get him, go get David. So they bring him in, the Bible says he's ruddy, he's a good looking kid, he's young, and, and uh, God says, that's the one. He's the man that's after my own heart. And so they anoint him king. But he doesn't become king yet, but he's been anointed. And so out of all of those brothers, David's the one who stood out to God and to Samuel. And I would say, first of all, before we even look at the story, don't let where you might be right now, what your home situation might be, what you've been told about your destiny, your future, or your abilities, dictate what God can do in your life. David was not the one that anybody would have chose. He was the youngest. Some scholars believe he would have been even an illegitimate child, possibly. And maybe that's why Jesse didn't include him as one of his sons. And certainly in the natural, it never would have been David that anybody would have chose for greatness. He watched sheep. He was the youngest. He was the, he was the runt, if you will, the litter. And his dad treated him that way. But God had a different plan for him. And I don't know where each one of you is in your situations, but let me just encourage you, God is the ultimate at taking the wise things of the world and turning them into something that's wise in His eyes. Taking the weak things of this world and giving them strength. And that's what He does. He's a a restorer. And He turns things around and He can be trusted. So wherever your situation is, remember, David became the greatest king Israel had ever known, but he started out as somebody his dad didn't even want to acknowledge he existed. So think about that when, when you are examining your own potential in the kingdom of God. It's not about your stature. It's not about your influence. It's not about who you know. It's about your gods. And God doesn't make mistakes. And he'll use every single one of you. So here we go. Uh, we're into the story now. We're in verse, chapter 17. And I'll just summarize this. You know that the Israelites are fighting the Philistines, right? And there's a valley in between them. And this wasn't like we do war today where we send missiles and drop bombs from planes. This was old school, before Braveheart, we're going to spear you in the head status. All right. So they sent out their biggest guy, Goliath, and he would go out there and, and if you have a better translation than me, you can see how big his shield was, somebody's shekels or somebody's cubits or something like that. But he's huge. It's like nine feet some odd tall. And he's got a giant shield and a giant sword. And he was the kid who had underarm hair in the fifth grade. That's Goliath, okay? And so he comes out there and he challenges the camp of Israel. And he says, you know, send me a man. Somebody who will fight me. And if we defeat you, you're going to be our slaves. But if you can find somebody amongst your puny little ranks who can defeat me, we'll be your slaves. And so that's where the, uh, the story starts here. And then it says, verse 12 of chapter 17. Well, back up to verse 11. When Saul, the king, and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. 
I want you guys to realize that first. When Goliath did that, when he spoke, when he challenged them, these are the people of God. They're in covenant with God. Jehovah God is their God. But when Goliath came out and challenged them, they were all dismayed and greatly afraid. And not one person amongst all of the armies of Israel stood up and said, hey, this isn't right. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. I want you guys to get that. And then in verse 17 it says this, And Jesse said to his son David, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well, and bring me back some token from them. So, Jesse's other sons are part of this army of Israel. They're the ones who are greatly fearing and dismayed. David stayed behind. He didn't go to war. So now David's dad is saying to him, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this bread and this cheese, and I want you to go bring it to the commanders of your brother's armies. Now, I don't know about you, but it would be tempting, if it was me, to say something along the lines of, you know, Dad, maybe you forgot. Maybe you weren't listening Maybe you're just getting old and it's slipping your mind. But you remember when we were hanging out with the prophet and he anointed me king? Uh, so I'm not your cheese boy, Dad. How about that? I'm not going to be running bread and cheese to anybody. In fact, my days of taking orders from you and my bunk brothers are done. All right? So things are about to change in this household when I become king. That would have been tempting to do because he was. He was anointed king. He was chosen. He was set apart. He was consecrated unto the work of the Lord. But listen to David's response. In verse 20, And David rose early in the morning, and he left the sheep with a keeper, and he took the possessions and went, just as Jesse had commanded him. The first thing I want you guys to realize about living a life of consecration is obedience, humble obedience to the Father always opens the door to your destiny. Humble obedience to the Father always opens doors for your destiny. He didn't have to do it. He could have said, Dad, I'm not, I'm not delivering cheese anymore. I'm done with that. But he didn't do that. Even though he knew his position, even though he knew who he was, he didn't use that in an authoritative way. He humbly obeyed his dad, his father. And he said, fine. And he didn't just do it grudgingly and drag his feet and say, well, I'm not going to be happy about it and I hate you. He didn't do that to his dad. He rose early, the Bible says. And he got someone to watch his sheep for him. He was responsible. He didn't just say, fine, these sheep are your problem. He took care of the things that he needed to do before he left and he obeyed. Humble obedience to God always opens the door for your destiny. But the Bible says God rejects the proud rejects the proud every single time. I don't believe there's anything God hates more than pride. Then people will say, don't you know who I am? And if you want to be a leader in the kingdom of God, you better be able and ready and love to serve. Because that's what leadership is. So if you're in here and you think, I want to be a Christian leader because it's going to be authoritative and it's going to involve me being in charge, Christian, serve, ser, Christian leadership is serving. That's what it is. Serving people, serving God, loving God, loving people. All right, that's number one. Then, so he goes on. And David left the things in charge of the keeper. And he came to, and, he, and behold, the champion, verse 23, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words he'd been speaking before, but this time David heard him. 
And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free. He won't have to pay taxes. And David said to the men who stood by him, Well, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? Listen to this. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? David, here's the second thing I want you to learn about consecrated people. David saw things differently than others around him. David had the ability to see things differently. When everyone else was afraid, when everyone else was dismayed about this giant shaking in fear and no one had any idea what to do, David came up and he said, well, what's going to be done for the man who takes care of this Philistine? And he says, for who is he? That he should be able to defy the armies of the living God. The times that David spent in worship, the times that David spent in prayer, the times when he was writing all these psalms, watching the sheep, herding the sheep, those were the times that he cemented in his heart his relationship with God. And out of that came this idea that my God's greater than any of these things. My God's greater than this giant and these Philistines. And the rest of the Israelites were unable to see that. It wasn't because David was special in any other way, but that he had consecrated himself for weeks and months and years prior to this moment. And let me just talk to you as a young person. There's nothing you can do to prepare yourself for life more than to spend time with God, than to develop your relationship with God. If you think Christianity is about rules, performance, doing the right things, you're never going to be able to maintain it. But if out of the overflow of who God is and what He's done, you live your life that way, obedience will happen. Living for God will happen. Jesus said this, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And we want to flip it the other way around and say, if you keep my commandments, then I'll know that you really love me. And God never said that. Jesus said, if you love me, when you love me, when you fall in love with me for who I am and what I've done, you'll keep my commandments and you'll find my commandments aren't even burdensome. That's what 1 John says. They're not hard anymore. So if you're struggling in areas, you're struggling to serve God in different areas, I'm not telling you to try harder. I'm telling you spend more time with God and fall more in love with Jesus. And it'll become easier in your life. And that's what David had done. He had the ability to see things differently than those around him. So he goes on, and his brothers get mad at him and uh, say, what are you doing here and what's going on? And David said to the king in verse 32, let no man's heart fail because of this man. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You can't go fight this Philistine, for you're a youth. And he's been a man of war from his youth. Verse 34, But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, and he would take a lamb from the flock, I went after him, struck him, delivered it out of his mouth, and if he rose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Now that's the Bible. Right there, okay? I'm trying to picture David as a 16-year-old kid. Forget the Philistine for a minute. We're talking lions and tigers and bears here, people, that are coming after his sheep, okay? Now, if it were me and I was a shepherd and a lion really wanted a sheep, I would say, fine, take one sheep, but don't tell your friends, please. Work with me on here. The Bible says David had no compromise When someone tried to take a sheep, a lion, he would run after it, catch it, and sock it in the face 
until it let go of the sheep. And he would take it back. Now that's crazy commitment to shepherding right there, okay? I don't know where that comes from. I've never even been near a sheep except for the petting zoo, and I would not chase a lion for that sheep. Let me just tell you that. But David was committed to this. And so when he sees the Philistine, he says, I'll fight him. And he gets resistance from Saul. You can't do that. You're just a youth. You're just too young. Maybe you've heard that in your own life. Maybe that's been words that have been spoken over you about your dreams and about your destinies. David said, let no man's heart fear. I'll fight him. And then when, Dave, when, Paul, when Saul said, you can't, you're a youth, David didn't say, oh yeah, I forgot. That's right. I thought I was a lot older. Okay, well, I'll come back. He said, no, I used to watch sheep. And when a bear came or a lion came or whatever he was fighting off came, this is what I did. And I took care of him. And then he says, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be just like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Consecrated people dwell and feed on the faithfulness of God. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to Him and feed on His faithfulness. Remember the things that God has done in your life in the past. When you're facing new battles and new struggles, remember the victories that God has provided. That's what David did. He didn't say, oh no. He said, this Philistine is going to be just like the times God was faithful when there was a bear. Faithful when there was a lion. And because he trusted God in the littler things, when he came up against a Philistine giant, he wasn't afraid. He wasn't filled with fear about his situation like everybody else was. And it wasn't magic. It wasn't because David was so great. We saw that already. It was only because he'd consecrated himself before God. He'd fed on the faithfulness of God in his past, and he recognized, my God is greater than this giant because he's delivered me from the lion and from the bear. Consecrated people have the ability supernaturally to rise above circumstances and to feed on the faithfulness of God. So here he goes. And so this time Saul says, okay, go and the Lord be with you. Verse 38, then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail, strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Saul tried to equip David with his own armor. He said, okay, well, if you're going to do this, you need to have this stuff. And David could not fight the battle in someone else's armor. And let me just encourage you guys. No one can consecrate you for you. That's it. No one can prepare you for the battle except you and God. There are no substitutes to that. There is no magic pill. There is no thing on eBay that you can... There's no download. There's no app that's going to prepare you for that. I'm telling you right now, time spent with God in prayer, seeking and searching His face, is going to be the thing that prepares you for battle. So you can't ride your parents' faith. You can't ride your friends' faith. You can't turn on Christian television once a week uh, and think, or go to church uh, every Wednesday and think that's going to be enough armor. That's someone else's. And they're okay. It's okay to go to church. It's okay to learn from other people. But you can't substitute what God wants to do in you personally. 
You can't. Not with books, not with authors, not with other speakers, and not with podcasts. You can't substitute those things. Some things you can substitute. It's like when you go grocery shopping. Some things you can buy the, the knockoff brand. You can substitute, like salt. I don't buy brand name salt because the other salt's like 10 cents cheaper. How about that? But you don't ever substitute on crucial items like Fruit Loops, right? Fruit Hoops do not taste like Fruit Loops. So if your parents have been buying you Fruit Hoops, I'm sorry. We'll pray for you after the service because they're not the same. They look the same, and maybe your parents' faith or someone else's faith looks the same as Fruit Loops, but they're Fruit Hoops. And when you need to finally eat them, they're nasty, and they don't work, all right? Pop-Tarts. We live in Michigan, right near Battle Creek where Pop-Tarts are created. Kellogg's Pop-Tarts, all right? There's no substitute for Kellogg's Pop-Tarts. I'm sorry. You buy the Costco, those are poop-tarts, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) There's just some things, and I'm telling you, in your relationship with God, in your relationship with the Word of God and with prayer, there is no substitute. Don't expect somebody else to do it for you. Consecration is your responsibility. So he tried to give him his arm, and it didn't work. We know the story. Verse 40, he took his staff, Choose five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in his pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David. He had a shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. This is the voice of the enemy and we've all heard it. This is what's going to happen to you. This is what's going to take place. This is what I'm going to do to your future, to your life. The enemy wants to shape your destiny. The enemy wants to use circumstances and battles to get you defeated. And he'll speak to you. And he'll try to fill your mind with lies. And he'll try to get you to believe things that aren't from God. And they sound real. Many times. And there's nobody, in my opinion, who's immune from that. It happens. The enemy wants nothing more than to derail your future, your purpose, and literally this generation into believing that you can't accomplish anything. You're just too young. You're too little. You're coming at the enemy with sticks and it'll never work. But listen to what David said. And David said to the Philistine, verse 45, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. Consecrated people, guys, realize that the battle is not theirs. It's the Lord's. When you've spent time with God, you'll stop striving in your own strength to win the battles. You'll stop trying to make it happen yourself. You'll stop trying to manufacture a solution to this. Or if I could just stop doing that. Or if this sin didn't have this hold in my life, or if I just had one break where somebody noticed me, and we begin in every way that we can to make it happen ourselves. David knew he couldn't beat this guy with a slingshot and a stone. But he said, I don't come to you with a spear and with a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, whom you've defiled. And I'm telling you, whatever you're facing, young person, whatever you're going through in your life, lean on God. Understand that the battle is the Lord's. Go with the strength that you have. Ephesians 6 says that we stand in the victory that God's already provided. We don't have to defeat Satan. He already has been defeated. We stand in the truth that's in Jesus Christ. And when you've done all to stand, keep standing. 
That's what Ephesians 6 says. So if you've been fighting and striving and you're tired, and you feel like you're not getting anywhere, and you feel like your purpose isn't unfolding the way you wanted it to, or these sins keep bogging you down in your life, stand in the victory that God's provided. Focus on God, not on the problem. Put your faith in Him, not in your own ability. And then it says this, in verse 46, this is David's declaration to the giant. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Listen to how many times he says will. And I will strike you down, cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hands. Every time that he was faced, he said, this is what's going to happen. He didn't hope. He didn't wish. And many times, guys, we spend too much time telling God how big our giants are instead of telling our giants how big our God is. That's what we need. That's what our generation needs is to say, amen, we can give God glory for that. And say, this is our God. And I won't be defiled by this world. And I won't be defiled by the things that are trying to penetrate my heart and my mind with darkness because I serve the living God. And I will walk in victory. And I will fulfill my purpose. And I will have the things of God come alive in my life and in my heart. And the Bible says that many will see, verse, verse 3 of Psalm 40, and be amazed and put their trust in the Lord. Never underestimate what your life as a consecrated person of God is going to do when others see it. When other people realize, why is he different? Why is she living like that? Why is this not affecting them? It's because you have confessed that I'm going to consecrate myself. I'm going to commit to the things of God. And the Bible says that he took his own, Goliath's own sword and he chopped the head off the giant and he ran through Jerusalem with it. David was a sick dude, for real. He needed therapy or something. But he was, he was consecrated and he ran around Jerusalem. And here's the point that I want you to remember. All the way back to when Jesse asked David, hey, I need you to take this stuff to your brothers. It was in that moment that God began to unveil David's destiny. But he can't look forward four chapters or 40 verses and see that if I deliver this bread or if I take this cheese, I'm about to be the champion. I'm about to kill a giant if this happens. David's faithfulness as a cheese boy, as a humble Papa John's delivery guy or whatever he was, David's faithfulness in that moment led to the greatest victory Israel had ever seen. But he didn't know that, guys, and that's the point. He was faithful in the little things. And I'm telling you, wherever you are, I'm not up here to gauge where you are spiritually. I'm not up here to spank you because you're not doing enough in the things of God. I'm saying there is no finish line in the things of God. It's a direction that you travel. You don't get to a point and say, I've made it. I've achieved it. I'm all that God ever wanted me to be. I'm asking you, are you traveling in the direction toward the heart of God? Because that's what's important to Him. Not your performance. Not some finish line mentality. But are there things in my life that I've not been faithful in? Are there things God's asking me to do? Little things that I'm not doing. My attitude at home with my parents. My attitude with my friends. The way that I look at people. Do I judge people? Do I consider myself to be better than other people because of who I am or what I've done? All of those guys are warning signs that you're not consecrated before God and you're limiting His ability to use you. But if you'll be humble, 
And if you'll do the little things, humble obedience to the Father, there's no limit. It's not about your pedigree. It's not about who you are in this world. There's no limit to how God can use you. Because the reality is, God would have used anybody. Any one of those uh, Israel army people could have stood up and said, this isn't right. This shouldn't be happening. But every single one of them was filled with fear and was filled with dismay. Until one young man who had consecrated himself, who was a worshiper, by the way. It's what I love about David. He was a worshiper. One young man who said, no, this isn't right. And he saw things differently. And he put himself into God's hands and said, can you use me in this situation? And God didn't say, yeah, I'm going to give you a scud missile and here you go, here's a Uzi and a bazooka. He gave him five stones and he took down a giant in his life. So don't think that God can't equip you with exactly what you need to overcome every single giant in your life. But remember, it's going to happen when you consecrate yourself before God. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let me pray with you guys. Stand up here. And I want you to just be thinking about what is it in my life that might be keeping me from being completely used by God? That's it. That's what I want you to concentrate on right now. So just close your eyes and ask God that in your heart. You don't have to even say it out loud. But ask God to reveal that to you. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's somebody you're dating. Maybe it's a lie you've believed. Maybe it's something you've been told. Maybe it's apathy. Maybe you've just gone through and you haven't even really cared. God wants to resurrect that. God wants to remove those things. Not so that He can make sure you keep the rules, but so that He can fill that with His presence. With the Spirit of the Lord is, guys, there's freedom. God wants nothing more than you to walk in the freedom He's provided through His Son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray for these young people. And God, I declare over them by faith that they are a chosen generation. God, a holy nation set apart for You, God. A royal priesthood. And God, we all face giants. We all have situations that look like they're bigger than we can handle, but God, we say the battle is the Lord's, God. We don't strive in vain. We're not working in our own strength. We're not exerting our own energy. We're standing in the victory that Jesus Christ has provided. And I pray that for these young people. I come against discouragement, God. Depression in this place, Father. Those who have have tried and tried and tried and failed, God, circumvent that with Your grace in this place today, Father, I pray, God. A new beginning. A fresh, God. A fresh fire. A fresh anointing in their lives, God. And grace to overcome the battle. And I pray, Lord, that when situations arise for us to be faithful, for us to serve, Your Word says in Philippians that we're to esteem others as better than ourselves, God. We're to think less of ourselves than than we do other people. So God, forgive us for when we've been selfish. For when we thought about, well, what's in it for me? For when we've been motivated by anything other than love for God and love for people, Father. And Your Word says in Matthew 5 that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. So God, I pray that You give us that hunger. And You fill us with Your truth with Your Word, and with Your Holy Spirit, and with a desire every day to make You the center of our lives and to consecrate ourselves to be used by You. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. Awesome, guys. Thanks for hanging out with me. I appreciate it.